0: Okay, would you take your Bibles, open to Daniel chapter 4. We're going to look at the actual event that the dream in Daniel 4 talks about. Don't worry, this is two sermons in one. I'm going to get us all caught up, we'll be all set. But this is how we're going to begin. How many times have you waited in the grocery store at the checkout line to be greeted with what? Paper or plastic? Well, Cheryl Zimmerman was waiting patiently in the grocery store. line waiting for that bagger, the checkout person to grab her. And what was finally her turn to check out the bagger, looked at her and said, kill a tree or strangle a bird, paper or plastic, right? Now we know that sometimes there are only two choices in life. Kill a tree, strangle a bird. You and I know that sometimes there are hard choices to make, kill a tree, strangle a bird. But we also know there could possibly be a better interpretation, a better explanation of some of the apparent choices we have. For instance, it could be kill a tree or a better interpretation could be cultivate creation as an image bearer of the creator, get my point? In other words, it could be two choices that you've got to make, but it also could be that there's a a more appropriate, a better, more accurate interpretation of reality that opens up a whole nother realm of choices that you could make, right? It is the same way when you come to the Bible to read it, interpret it, teach it, and apply it. In other words, it could be only one or two choices of understanding the text. It could be only one or two choices of applying the text. Or or there could be a better, more accurate interpretation of the text that we just don't know about. For instance, I'm going to take some commonly... uh, Commonly displayed interpretations and applications of the Bible that we're all familiar with and they're popular today and they're common and we probably hold them and I want you to tell me whether it is an issue of choosing between two choices or is there the possibility that there's a better, more accurate interpretation of the passage that leads you to a whole nother choice in interpreting and applying the Bible. For instance, let's take Noah and Genesis. Is the primary meaning there an application there? The two choices of be like Noah before the ark. Or the second choice, don't be like Noah after the ark. Or is there a whole other interpretation and primary meaning and application there than those two choices? What about Joseph? Joseph and Genesis is the primary meaning there. Be like Joseph or don't be like Joseph's dysfunctional brothers. Now, just a little side note here. Isn't it interesting that when we talk about being like Joseph, generally we talk about his integrity, be like his integrity. We talk about his trust in God's providence, and we usually talk about his fleeing. But if we're really going to be like Joseph, we can't overlook that we need to be like him and have a messianic dream to actually think he's a messianic figure. And if we really want to be like Joseph... We've got to save Israel from famine and disaster. Why is it that we pick some, don't pick others, when we're going to be like somebody? Just putting this out there for our mutual consumption and edification. Now, when you read about David in 1 Samuel, is the primary meaning, be like David and slay your faith giants. Or, don't be like Saul and cower before your faith giants. Or, is there another primary, better, more accurate interpretation and application of David? Last one. When you get to Daniel, and you start looking at Daniel and his three friends, and Nebuchadnezzar is the primary choice there. Be like Daniel. Don't be like Nebuchadnezzar. In other words, be like Daniel and his three friends. Change your diet to vegetables and water. Ask God to make you stronger and smarter than your unbelieving friends. Become a dream interpreter and don't let a little little fire scare you. (laughs) Or don't be like Nebuchadnezzar. Don't have dreams about giants. Don't make a golden giant and tell everybody to bow down and worship it. And surely don't be so addicted to yourself. Which is it? Well, some of you are thinking, which way is this guy going? Because I kind of like the faith giant idea, right? Well, what we've done is that while we've been working through Daniel, we've taken a little time out. We've marched through Daniel 1, Daniel 2, Daniel 3. We're in Daniel 4, and we've gone time out. We need to reorient ourselves. We need to take a step back and actually look at how do you approach the Bible when you read it, when you interpret it? How do you look at characters like Daniel, his three friends, and Nebuchadnezzar in the Bible? So when we get to Daniel 4, what we're doing is we're actually, I'm wanting us to see that there is a better, more accurate interpretation of the text than the standard fare that's usually given to us today, which is, Don't be like so-and-so, be like so-and-so. I'm wanting us to see the glory in the text, not you and me in the text. Sure, I want us to see ourselves after we've seen the glory, okay? So what we've done is we've seen that Jesus actually takes the Bible, which was the Old Testament at the time, and he took the Bible and he said and used it in interpreting it and applying it with himself in the center of the Old Testament text. That blows our minds. John 5, Luke 24. Right. And what that means is, is what the Bible is in its unity, that it's really one story. (laughs) About one hero. Because the one person read, interpreted, and applied the Bible that way. Remember on the road to Damascus, what did he say to them? He says, gosh, why are you guys so slow to believe? Don't you know what the scripture said must happen? He must die. And then what did it say? He opened up the scriptures, starting with the law and the prophets, and told them everything about himself in the scriptures. Right. When the New Testament writers talk about the one story approach of the Bible, they call it the gospel story, the good news story. And they say this good news story in the Old Testament comes in the form of a promise in the New Testament. It comes in the form of fulfillment. When Paul gets a hold of this one story of the Bible or this gospel story, he says, look, this one story, it comes in types and shadows and patterns and prefigurements. In the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it comes in this final, full reality. He's like saying, Look, in the Old Testament, it's a skeleton. When you get to the New Testament, you get the superhero. But it's still all about him. If you're a Reformed theologian, you say, It's a way of looking at the Bible when you put on a pair of glasses, and when you put on a pair of glasses, the Bible, you come to the Bible, the Bible gives you a pair of glasses and you put it on and a theologian calls it the redemptive historical lens. For ease of communication, we're calling it the story approach. One story about one hero. That's what the Bible's about. So the Bible, in its events, in its characters, in its major persons, And actions and institutions, they're not isolated. They're not abstracted. They're not individual. They're connected to one another and connected to the story of Jesus. So what does this mean practically? What we saw what this means practically is this. You go from the text, the primary people, the primary places, the primary events, the primary actions, the primary institutions, you take the text and your first step is towards the storyline of Jesus, not towards you. The first step is towards the storyline of Jesus, then to you, then to me, then to us. Does that make sense? In other words, you don't go from the text to you immediately. If you do, you miss the glory in the text. If you do, you miss the grace in the text, the power in the text, the person in the text, we said this. So I'm going to say it again. Those of you who hear it, maybe you can remember it now and use it yourself. If you if you go from the text to you first, it's like taking one piece and a 10,000 piece puzzle. Taking one piece, the part that has the grass at the bottom of a tree of a whole forest in the middle of a you know a beautiful place, and you've got that one puzzle, and you ignore. The big picture of the puzzle, but you got your piece and you start reading it, interpreting it, teaching about it and applying it isolatedly. There's a word for you. Apart from the puzzle and the big picture of the puzzle. And so what are you left with? Your own intuition, your own imagination, your own self-centered tendencies. Do you see the difference? This piece has a place in the puzzle. And that's how we need to read our Bibles and teach our Bibles. Because if we only go to Daniel 4 with a piece, we do things like this we psychoanalyze Nebuchadnezzar, we psychoanalyze each other. You psychoanalyze yourself. You start looking at what happens in this dream and the way he, he becomes a beast. And you start wondering, I feel like that sometimes. All right, And you psychoanalyze and all of a sudden you have all these wonderful principles on mental illness. You do things with error-filled lessons on mental illness. You do things like false teaching on deliverance methods and ministries. In other words, these deliverance teachings that arise today, it's like this. If you do this, if you follow these five steps, if you humble yourself, get rid of your pride, then God, then God will move in your life in such a way that he will cure you of your depression and he will remove the bipolar tendencies that you have and he will remove the mental suffering that you have. And if it doesn't happen, it's because you didn't follow the five steps or something's wrong with you. This is the kind of stuff that comes out of going from the text immediately to you without having the context of the story then go to you. So if we only have one piece of the puzzle in Daniel four, we miss the grace, the glory, the power, the person in the text. We miss the fact that God only wins. God always wins, even when you're his people and you're in crushing exile, because that's what they needed to hear in Daniel four. That the one, the primary person that was the instrument in destroying them in Jerusalem, dragging them into Babylon, almost killing some of the three best prophets and folks and spiritual people and leaders in Israel. This one is humble because God always wins. And then for you and me, we'll miss that God always wins even when we are at our end. As God's people now some of you have wondered is there anything that applies to me from a character in a biblical story I know you've wondered that because you've asked me and the answer is of course there is I mean we're told in in 1st Corinthians 10 that these things happen to some specific Old Testament folks like Israel for an example to them but as instruction to us Okay, so there is a something in which a character comes to us. We look at the character and we can apply it to us. Well, what is that? Well, that's what's called the fellow fallen worshiper element. In other words, they're fellow sinners just like you and me. And they need the grace of God just like you and me. And that applies every time. Okay? So the link between characters in the Bible... And you and me is, they are fellow fallen worshipers. But I want you to understand this. The text sometimes leads with a character, leads towards the one story first, not the fellow fallen worshiper first. Sometimes the text leads towards the fellow fallen worshiper element and not towards the one story element. Let me give you a point in case and then we're going to move on. When the text says in Genesis, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. The text is leading with the story element there. It's not leading with his fellow fallen worshiper role. We don't have the role that Noah did in saving the world at that time. But the point of Noah being a righteous man and blameless is that God saves the world by the righteousness of one man. Now, that's a type. That's a shadow. That's a prefigurement. That's a foretaste and a forecast of the righteous one who saves the world by his righteousness. Now, after the ark, Noah gets drunk and gets involved in deep immorality that I'm embarrassed to say in front of you. We are safe to say that it's not leading that text to the story element, but to the fellow fallen worshiper element. Do you see how this is working, y'all? We're going to keep going, and as we keep going, you'll get it more and more. Today and next week, we're going to deal with the fellow fallen worshiper element of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, remember, the primary leading of Nebuchadnezzar is we're not like him. We're not a Babylonian king. We're not an instrument that God uses to destroy the typological kingdom of God in Israel. We don't do that. We're not referred to in the New Testament that our kingdom Babylon is a beast that typifies and symbolizes all beast-like state governments that seek to terrorize and destroy God's people. We're not like that, unless we're the president or a dictator. So the primary movement of Nebuchadnezzar is even towards the one story first, before it's the fallen worshiper reality of him. But there is a fallen worshiper reality, and we've got two sermons that we're going to do to prove it. Are you with me? Now we're all caught up. That was just the introduction. That was just getting us back on track after a couple of weeks of being gone and eating lots of food and visiting relatives and having fun. And now we've got to get some more mental sweat and jump back into Daniel chapter 4. So there is a lot of Nebuchadnezzar in all of us. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Daniel 4, 28 to the end. All of this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. Now remember, there's dreams. He has a dream. He can't interpret it. Daniel interprets it. Now here's the fulfillment of the dream. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? I mean, even as I say that, I just want to step away from him because I don't want to get. Toasted like he might get toasted. Well, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. It shall be driven from you shall be driven from among men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar and he was driven from among men and he ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles feathers and his nails were like birds claws at the end of the days. Now remember in that scenario, we're in third person, but now we're back to first person at the end of the days, I Nebuchadnezzar lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the most high and I praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now, remember, a king in this ancient world, no one ever said that to a king. When Nebuchadnezzar made that golden image and said, everybody will bow down to it. No one came up to him and says, what have you done? So he understands this. At the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords, they sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right. All his ways are just. And here it is. And those who walk in pride, he is able, able, able to humble. Please be seated. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the urgency of your word. We thank you that your word works. And I ask now that you would work deeply, powerfully, personally in our lives. For we bring nothing to you. But empty hands. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Alright, what's insanity or what's sanity? What is normal? What's thinking and living healthily? What does being a true human look like? What is an image bearer? The fellow fallen worshiper element of Nebuchadnezzar is answering that question for us in the reverse. It's showing us what sanity is. By showing us the insanity of Nebuchadnezzar. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at several imbalances today and next week. Today we're going to look at the one that rules them all. We're going to look at the one root that is the cause of all the other fruitful imbalances in the mind and the heart that affect us all. We'll look at the fruit next week. We're going to look at the root today. The one source that drives us to insanity. And of course I mean this metaphorically, but it also could be literally. What is spiritual health? What does image bearing look like when it's healthy? Okay. Charles Spurgeon is arguably the prince of preachers. That's what his son wrote of him. That is what those who have heard him have said of him. I mean, just to give you an idea, can you imagine? I mean, what... You know, here, here you go. You get the inside, look at your pastor. What I would give to have a voice that could preach to 25,000 people without a sound system. Now, when I was in seminary, there was one of these old preachers that came in to preach one time in chapel. And he asked that they not have a sound system. And when he preached, my hair, what I had left, was plastered behind me. I got a little taste. Ooh, this is what it must have been like back then. Right? Well, if thousands upon thousands were converted under his ministry, tens of thousands have been gripped by God's grace through his ministry to this day via the printed page. His sermons, his books, his letters, his writings, his journals. God has used into thousands of people's lives. Well, while he was preaching to his congregation a sermon entitled The Power of the Holy Spirit, this is what he said. I hope that my will is managed by divine grace. But I am afraid my imagination is not at times. Those who have a fair share of imagination know what a difficult thing it is to control. You cannot restrain it. My imagination has taken me down to the vilest kennels and sewers of the earth. It has given me thoughts so dreadful that while I could not avoid them, yet I was thoroughly horrified by them. These thoughts will come. And when I feel when I feel in the holiest frame, the most devoted to God, the most earnest in prayer, it often happens that at the very time that's. When the plague breaks out the worst. Now, for some of us, when we hear this, we say, it can't be true. Not a spiritual giant like him. If you've read Jonathan Edwards, he says the same thing. You read a John Calvin, he says the same thing. Not in their past, in their present. The primary imbalance of the mind and the heart, the one imbalance that rules them all is that you and me, we are sinners. We don't just lie, lust, and lack love. We don't just think badly, feel badly, desire badly speak badly, act badly. We don't just do sinful things. We are sinful. You are a sinner. You have a living, breathing, bullying, dominating, unrelenting, universally holding, twisted power within you. A power that is so twisted and a power that's so great. It's described in the scriptures as a power that reigns, a power that Rules a power that lords over you, all disobedience, all distorted desires. It seeks out your destruction and ultimately will kill you. That's the way the scripture talks about it. It's a power, a twisted power in you that's so fixed in you. It's so pressed into you. It's so much a part of the very fiber of you that the scripture actually calls it a nature. A corrupt nature that infects and corrupts and poisons and stains the very faculty of your thinking and your mind. The very faculties of your feeling and your, your emotions and your desires, your speaking, your actions. It taints, it stains everything you touch. So it's not only a twisted power according to scriptures. It's not only a corrupt nature within you. But it's so fixed, it's so certain, it's so unavoidable that the scripture calls it a law within. Now, this is not referring to, you know, within you and me. We have this barcode and this list that barks orders at us Don't do this, do this. It's meaning that it's so in you, it's so certain. It's like gravity. It's like the sun rising and setting. It's like it's more certain than two plus two is four. It's so real. It's so pushed in. It's so unavoidable in you that it's more real than gravity. It's more real than math. It's more real than any law. It's fixed. Now, you have an enemy within... And this enemy within corrupts the way you relate to God right now. You have an enemy within, and it corrupts the way you see him. It corrupts the way you think about him. It corrupts the way you worship him. It corrupts the way you serve him. The enemy within is presently corrupting your marriage. The enemy within is presently corrupting your parenting, your job your communication and conversation, your friendships, the way you relate to one another right now, your gifts and your talents and your abilities, your view of life, your interpretation of reality. The enemy within is why you lied this week so you wouldn't look bad. The enemy within is why you can't find feelings for God or faith for God right now. The enemy within is why you get so angry so quickly. The enemy within is why you only see an other person's sin. And you're more outraged by their sin than your own sin. The enemy within is why grace doesn't make sense to you. The enemy within is why you're convinced you can't change. And it's why you'd rather do anything else than read your Bible or pray or go to church. Author Chris Lungard said it's one thing to listen to a lecture about AIDS, how it spreads, what it does to a body, how invincible it is. It's another thing to hear your doctor say, I'm sorry, you're HIV positive. It's one thing to listen to a sermon about sin and hear him wax about its twisted power and wax and wane about its corrupt nature and its law-like certainty. But it's another thing to be deeply aware, to be desperately aware, to be helplessly aware that you're a sinner who sins. That's a whole other ballgame. Nebuchadnezzar's fellow fallen worshiper linked to us in this passage is found in verses 11 through 12, particularly verse 15. What's the link? Well, in 11 and 12, if you read it real quick with me, 11 and 12, you find a strange borrowed image from an ancient time ago. If you look at 11, the tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the ends of the earth. This is a cosmic tree, a tree that unites heaven and earth. You keep reading in 12, its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heaven lived in its branches and all flesh was fed by it. Then you go down to this verse 15, but leave the stump of its root in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his food, his portion be with the beasts in the grass or the plants of the earth. The link between Nebuchadnezzar as a fellow fallen worshiper and you and me, the link is found here in borrowed images from the tree of life in the garden and a borrowed image from God's judgment on Adam's sin. In other words, when God judges Adam's sin in 3.18, don't go there in Genesis. He says, you shall eat. He's judging them. The sins occurred. He's come to them. And this is what he says to Adam. You shall eat the plants or the grass of the field, Adam. In other words, you had free access to the delightful fruits of the tree of life that I supply, but they are now gone and you will eat grass. In Daniel 4.15, it says, let his portion, his food, be with the beasts in the grass or the plants of the earth. Now, those of you that See the Bible as is isolated, abstract, individual stories and languages and phrases, and see no unity of the scriptures, you will not follow me. In fact, you'll accuse me. But if the Bible's one story, it's borrowed images from the tree of life, borrowed images from the judgment of Adam. You, Nebuchadnezzar, have access to the blessings of this cosmic tree that are supplied by God, but now they're gone, and you will eat grass. What's happening here with Nebuchadnezzar being linked to Adam, it's like the curtain's been pulled back from the stage. You have Nebuchadnezzar, and you're seeing his sinful acts. They're hinted to at 15 and 17. You see it take place in 30, 31. It's talked about, Daniel says, look, you need to repent of the way you're treating your people. Daniel saw what was happening. He gave an appeal. Repent, Nebuchadnezzar. So we know there's something sins going on horizontally, but we know the big sin vertically takes place. When he looks around, he says, "Ah, my kingdom. Right? But what the text is doing, it's saying there's something behind the sinful acts. There's an enemy within. There's a twisted power, a corrupt nature. A law-like corruption in him, which is why he does this. But it began someplace else. It came into the world someplace else. It infected, as Paul said, it, it was opened and came in. This enemy within, it has a history, it has an origin, and it goes all the way back to the garden. Adam and Eve and a serpent. And so, where we find this power, nature, law like corruption, is Adam let it into the world. And it infected Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar, Noah. David, Israel, you, me. So how we're going to end is this. What hope do you have against your enemy within? What hope do you have? What hope do I have against this enemy within? Look at verse 37. Verse 37, the last part of it. And those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. That key word there is what? Able. The key word able means have power over, prevail over. It means overcome. It means to be victor. It means to win. It means God always wins. The king of heaven, which is what is referred to, look in verse 37, the king of heaven. Now, that word and its multiple meanings and words associated with it in Daniel 4 alone is used 16 times. The king of heaven is able to humble the enemy within That's why Paul says in Romans 6, we know that the old self, the old self, make sure you get this right. The old self is the dominion, the universal reign and rule of the enemy within. It's not the absence of his presence. It's the cutting off of his rule. Okay, so when Paul says we know that the old self, the dominion of the enemy within was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we no longer are what? Enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So here's the application. If we do not have a real and vital living trust In the Lord Jesus, we are enslaved to sin. Sin has a universal hold on us with no contrary influences at work in us like the Holy Spirit or the grace of God. John Owen gives the best picture of it. Remember, he gives this great picture in his early writings on mortification of sin, sin and temptation. He says the human heart Apart from the grace of God, the human heart left to the enemy and the dominion of the enemy within is like a jungle. One of those jungles that are down there in South Africa where the the vines and the underbrush and the the density and the thickness and the intertwining of all that jungle is so thick that no light penetrates the canopy and reaches the jungle floor. And that's the human heart. That's the dominion of the enemy within. There's only one who cuts a clearing in the jungle. And he does so by the power of the cross. And now light reaches the floor of the jungle. The vines are still there. The presence of sin is still indwelling. But its reign, its rule humbled. Do you see this? And so those of us who do not know Jesus, or you know, or we have a we have a casual profession of him, we have an intellectual understanding of him, but but no real vital trust in him. Trust him. Trust that He is able to humble the enemy within you. And He does so by the power of His cross. His death crushes the enemy. Now, Christian, Christian, we need to know that the dominion of the enemy within is crushed. So we need to stop living like it's not. You and I need to know that the enemy within, His dominion and His reign, crushed, humbled, So we need to stop living like it's not. We need to stop living like the enemy has dominion, that the enemy is Lord, that the enemy is king, that the enemy is ruling and not Jesus. We need to stop giving into our sin without a fight. We need to stop giving into our sin without faith in Jesus' death on the cross for us. So we need to recognize the enemy within no longer is king. It's been dethroned. So we need to stop living and being convinced by his whisperings and his threatenings and his pushing and his pulling where he's still saying, I'm king, I rule here. So, yeah, you have no hope of changing. Yeah, you're always going to be like that. Yeah, what that person says about you is true. You're an angry, hard person. You'll never change. That's his language. That's what he likes. And we go, you're right. And Jesus says, no, I'm king here. So we need to stop living like the enemy within is king. But then there's another side of us that we need to stop living like we're naive. In other words, the dominion of the enemy is crushed, but the indwelling presence of sin is not. And that indwelling presence of sin will be with us till the day we die. So that means you will struggle the rest of your life with sin. I mean, you need to not be naive and grab these foolish doctrines and teachings that say you can be perfect now or you can somehow live above the indwelling presence of sin so that it never touches you, it never pushes on you, it never pulls on you, it never gives you a black eye, it never gives you a bloody nose. There is no such thing. That's why John says, if we say we have no sin, we call him a liar. We need to have a gutsy, grace look at sin. It will be with you to the day you die. So fight it. Fight it with faith in the Savior. Okay? And we need to put aside all foolish notions that we pretend we're better than we are. This is what happens when you have a low view of sin that's still in you. You start pretending you're better than you are. I do this. You do this. I do this with my wife. Did you just lie, Jeff? Oh, no. Uh Uh-uh. I would never lie. I'm a pastor, honey. (laughs) But yeah, I just lied right through my teeth because I didn't want to look bad. Do you do that? Or do you not do that? No, I know you do that. The Bible tells me you do that. So we need to stop pretending we're better than we are. We need to stop pretending we're better than others. We need to not be shocked at other Christians' sin. We need to be an unshockable community. We don't coddle sin. We don't cherish sin. We don't treat it like it's our friend. We treat it like it's an enemy, but we're not shocked that it is plaguing our brothers and sisters and plaguing our own heart. We're not shocked at that. Because if we're shocked, we never bring the light of the grace of God upon it. If we're shocked, we hide it. We cover it up and it eats you inside out. And it can be because of trying to suppress it and deny it, pretend you're something you're not, pretend you're better than others, fractures start happening inside of you. And it can lead to some severe mental stuff. Okay? Now, we need to also stop fighting Christians the fire of sin with a squirt gun because only the cross will do. In other words, I think we go to the fire of sin and we go. <laughs> That's what we do. We get out our list. Shh-sh-sh. You know, we get out our code. We get out our principles, we get out our applications, we get out our how-tos, we get out our discipline, we get out our willpower, but only the cross will do. And the cross comes in and crushes it. And the cross comes in. I mean, don't miss what's saying, what's being said here. Nebuchadnezzar's words, he is able to humble. That means trust in the cross anew. That means right now, he's able right now to humble you. He's able to humble the sin you struggle with. He's able right now, if you're not a believer, to humble the enemy within by crushing the dominion for all time. And now you're on a level playing field with the grace of God, fighting your eternal enemy until he takes you into glory. But while you fight, you trust in the cross anew in real time in your struggle with sin. Get rid of your squirt guns. Your squirt guns won't do it. Keeping the law won't do it it will only inflame the fire only the cross will crush it okay now Napoleon saw many dead on the battlefield you can imagine and he makes a statement that will make many of you I don't know but I if you put yourself in his shoes and walk where he walked I think you'll understand what he's saying. He said, the corpse of an enemy always smells sweet. Brothers and sisters, the corpse of your enemy within always smells sweet. And only the cross does it. So I don't care if you're not a Christian or if you are a Christian, the application is the same. Trust the cross. The power of Jesus' death is able to humble the enemy within. Amen.